0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews or conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and um, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out other ones, go to batgap.com and um, go to the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in various ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on every page of batgap.com. My guest today is Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Namaste. Namaste. I often say this when I do interviews, but this is I really enjoyed preparing for this interview. I've listened to maybe a couple of dozen of your talks and read couple of dozen also of your articles and you are a beautiful speaker and a beautiful writer not only in terms of the craft of speaking and writing but in terms of the content that you're conveying through your speeches and and writings thank you so much oh you're welcome and you're living an amazing life Um, and i have your bio here and i could bore everybody by me (laughs) reading it over the next couple minutes but i'd rather you just tell it you know because that'll be more fresh and interesting Um, so just start telling us a little bit about yourself and, um, and how you ended up with a name like that and <laughs> what you do and all that stuff. And I'll be sure to interject questions as we go along.
1: Sure. Wow. You know, it's so funny because it doesn't feel like my story. I mean, I'm the one it happened to, but it's really a story of grace. It's a story of the way that grace works when it flows in such a beautiful and miraculous way through a life. So I grew up in Los Angeles. I had as good of a Western education as one can get. I then graduated from Stanford University.
0: And before you did that, we can't forget to mention that you got a black belt in karate. I did. At the age of 15. I did. I did. I
1: did. Yes. Yeah. And I then graduated high school, then went to Stanford for university, graduated with a degree in psychology.
0: PhD, ultimately.
1: Ultimately, eventually a PhD. And was about halfway through the PhD when i went travelling to india and i had been an avid traveller i loved to travel my parents had instilled that in me from a very young age we were always going somewhere and they had taken me to europe to london I mean just to so many places and then from the time i was a teenager i was travelling alone in Europe, across America, in so many different places. So for me, travel was very, very natural. And after having done the first few years of my PhD program, pretty much nonstop, because both high school and undergrad, you've got summer vacation, you've got a summer, summer holidays. But in graduate school, when you're dealing with people who are on so many different schedules and some people with jobs and families and whatnot, they really made the possibilities as wide as they could. So people could go pretty much to school at any of the four quarters during the year, including the summer quarter. And you could get as many units and as many courses during the summer as The other quarters. So I had gone through the summer for the first two years and then finally realized I need a break. And so I had originally been anticipating a trip with a backpack to the mountains of Europe, which was very much what, what I tended to do. But India was suggested by the person I was traveling with. And I thought, you know what? why not i s- agreed to go to india and as embarrassing as it is almost 22 years now in retrospect the only reason that i actually agreed to go to india because i didn't know anything about the country i was not on a spiritual path i was not someone you would have considered a seeker and i was certainly not someone who would have self identified as a seeker i was an academic i was focused and goal oriented. But I agreed to go to India because I was a very strict vegetarian and had been a vegetarian since I was 15. And I was one of those vegetarians where when I was young and we would go out to eat, my mother would say to the waiter or the waitress, pull up a chair. You're going to be here for a while (laughs) because it, it always was about what's in the sauce, what's in the stock. And are you sure there's no, you know, chicken broth powder in your seasoning? And when I had been in Ecuador... I developed pretty severe PTSD actually after discovering that the place where I was eating rice and beans every day, it turned out they were cooking their rice instead of in water. They were cooking it in chicken broth. And it had never occurred to me that anybody could possibly conceive of cooking rice and chicken broth. And by the time I found out I had been eating it for, you know, several weeks or even a couple months at that time, and was so upset that I literally had, had PTSD from it. So when India was suggested, I thought, well, God, at least, at least in India, I'll be able to eat properly. At least in India, they know what vegetarian means. And, and actually I was vegan and in India, vegetarian means also that they don't use eggs. There's no concept of, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat eggs. So it was really, really easy for me. And that was actually why I had even agreed to go to India. And on the airplane over, I had this conversation with myself in which I said, this makes no sense. I was not a wanderer. I was not someone who did things that made no sense. And here I was flying thousands of miles away to a place I had really no interest in going to, where the only redeeming factor in my mind was that I could get pure vegetarian food. But I was living in in
0: Los Angeles. Right.
1: And I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. So on my corner, I mean, everywhere I could get good vegetarian food, I cook, I love to cook vegetarian food. So it wasn't like I was starving for good vegetarian food. And so I thought, this is crazy. Why am I going? I've taken September to December, the whole semester off, and it doesn't make any sense. And so I realized, you know, even though I wasn't religious and I wasn't even someone who would have said, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Even though I wasn't either of those, I had always deeply, deeply believed in the presence of a planner. I couldn't have told you who that planner was or what the plan was or anything about it, but I deeply believed that this was not random. I deeply believed that there was a capital P plan and that therefore there had to be a capital P planner. And so on that plane, I said to myself, okay, there must be a reason I'm going that I'm just not aware of. And so I have to keep my heart open. And I took a vow on the plane that said, I will keep my heart open to find out why I'm going. And if I can't keep my heart open, if I find myself with a closed heart on autopilot, I'm gonna come back because there's no point roaming around a country for three months if you can't keep your heart open as to why you were there in the first place. And even though I couldn't, you know, register now for the semester I had taken off. I could start work on my research. I could start work on my dissertation. I could get practicum units. I mean, there were all sorts of productive things I could have done. So we'd get to India and get to Delhi, and it was, it was September of 1996. And so there wasn't Google. You could just ask, you know, where to go, what to do, what to see. So we had a, 500 page lonely planet guidebook that I opened up in Delhi and said, Rishikesh. And it was, it was just like that. Rishikesh. You know, I was a mountain person, a real, real devout mountain person. And Rishikesh was there at the base of the mountains and it was on the banks of a river and it had yoga studios. And, you know, we were already yoga students in San Francisco. And so it just sounded like a really perfect place to begin an Indian adventure. It also was close enough to Delhi that we could get there easy. And it seemed like a really, a really beautiful place to just go and figure out the rest of the trip. And in Delhi, in looking at the guidebook, I had selected one of the hotels. And, you know, Rishikesh is a holy city, which means that you cannot buy meat in the entire city. You cannot buy alcohol in the entire city. Even today? Even today. Even today. It's out, it's against the law. So, yeah, it's great. And so the descriptions of the hotels really looked very much the same. I mean, they all would say things like AC rooms, non-AC rooms, vegetarian restaurant. But at that time, all of the hotels were either on the downtown side of Rishikesh or up by the second bridge, the northernmost bridge, which is called Lakshmanjula. And the southern bridge, what's called Ramjula, at that time, on the non downtown side of Rishikesh, the calmer, more peaceful, beautiful, you know, non traffic y side of Rishikesh, it was all ashrams, except there was only one hotel there at that time. Now there's many, many, but at the time there was only one. And it was called the Green Hotel. And something about it, again, the descriptions all were identical. But because I was this avid environmentalist, you know, I had I had organized the first Earth Day at Stanford when I had been an undergrad there and was just really a, a very ardent environmentalist, a devotee of the forests and everything green. So I thought, well, why not the Green Hotel? I didn't know it, I didn't know anything about the geographical layout of Rishikesh so it wasn't that I purposely chose it due to its location I just chose it due to its name and when we got down in the downtown side where all of the transportation drops you you know there's a taxi stand right there the driver didn't say to us there's a boat that will take you across you go right down there's a boat He also didn't say, oh, shall I help you find a coolie to help with your bags? He just said, you cross river, you cross bridge, and it's only a footbridge. And so we ended up actually carrying all of our luggage across this swinging footbridge, having no idea that there was a boat we could have taken, having no idea that there were coolies who could have helped us. And I remember thinking... God, you had to choose the only hotel in this entire city that the taxi couldn't have actually dropped you off at. You know, the only hotel that required you to schlep your bags across this footbridge in, you know, the hot summer. So we get to the hotel and drop the bags. And I say, I'm going to put my feet in the river. I didn't know that the Ganga was holy. I mean, it had nothing to do with that. It was just, I was hot. I was tired and I wanted to just go and freshen up and be with, be with nature. And I said, I'm going to go put my feet in the river. And I got down to Ganga and I didn't even have my, feet in the river yet. I was just standing there and I looked out. And on on the water of Ganga, right there, I had such such a vision, such an experience that was it was visual, it was physical, it was physiological. I mean it was every sphere of sensation and perception that we have. It was on that level. And it knocked me to the ground and I burst into tears. And they weren't they weren't sad tears, of course, but they also weren't even happy tears. It wasn't, oh my God, I'm so happy. This is so beautiful. They were just tears of the truth. They were tears of being in the presence of the truth. And in that moment, it was as though a curtain had just come down on the first 25 years of my life. And all of that to which I was attached, goals I had, relationships I had, possessions I loved, you know, sensory pleasures I loved. It was as though the curtain just dropped on all of that. And suddenly nothing mattered except being there in that presence of truth. And that was really, really the beginning. I mean, there's so much more, but I could, I could take up our entire time with the story.
0: So. <laughs> I'm going to read something you wrote about that experience. You said, The unanticipated, indescribable experience of spiritual awakening I had on the banks of the Ganga River was richer, deeper, and more meaningful than anything I had ever known. She captured my soul and pulled the drop of water I had called my identity back into her infinite stream, remerging me into myself. Yes. Um, so that was beautiful. And now having read that, I just want you to elaborate a little bit. You said something that all of your senses were involved in this experience, visual and everything else. So what, if if someone could step inside your head, so to speak, what would they actually be experiencing or seeing then? Besides a river? I mean, there was obviously much more going on there.
1: (laughs) There was. And, you know, I've spent 21 years trying to figure out how to articulate this. And I don't know if it's a deficit of the English language, a deficit of my mastery of the English language, a deficit of language at all, but... I'm unable to to put words that to me feel satisfactory, as though, ah yeah, that's that's what the experience was. I can I can go around it. And so so what had happened was visually I was looking at the river, but had an an experience visually. Of the presence of the divine, and no, it wasn't like an image of a man with long white hair and a white beard superimposed on the river. It wasn't. Right, it or wasn't, a woman
0: with four arms or something.
1: Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, it, it it wasn't the image of what we you know consider Ganga, the goddess. It wasn't a woman on a crocodile. It wasn't that. But it was a, a very, very visual image of divinity. And the, and the river and this image of divinity sort of merged into each other. And it was, it was divine. And, but the, the felt sense experience was that it also merged into me. And so it wasn't just something I was seeing with my eyes, but rather something that I was also part of. And so I was seeing it and living it. Simultaneously. And then, and then eventually, when I started moving my head around, something very interesting happened, which was that my visual field split into foreground and background. And so, normally, we just have an image, like this is what I see. And sure, some things are closer than others, but it's all one visual field. But what happened to me was that visual field split. And so the, the image of the divine stayed in the foreground, even though the background changed. So originally it was divinity on Ganga. And then as I moved my head, it became divinity on steps and then divinity on pillar and then divinity on child and divinity on tree. And, and it was just whatever I saw. Although the background kept changing, the foreground stayed the same and and i just kept crying because it just was so beautiful and it was as though a veil that i had worn not just on my eyes but on my mind on my brain on my inter heart on my interaction with the universe had just been pulled off and and i could see from every aspect of me
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautifully described, and um, and we can all hearken back to what you said a few minutes ago about the sense that there was there's a plan to the universe or to life or something, and there must have been a feeling like of tremendous significance, like ah, this is why I came here, and this whole thing was orchestrated so to bring me to this point. You may not have intellectualized it at that point.
1: Yeah, I di- I didn't have that much. Intellectual capacity still available to me, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, I think, pretty incoherent in those, those early days, crying a lot, uh, a lot of just open mouthed awe. I was definitely not analyzing it except to know this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be. The aspect of, of why I came came up to me only about a, a week, several days later when I I had found that the ashram in which I now live, Parmarth Niketan, was a parallel pathway to get from the hotel down to the river. And the pathway that originally the hotel people had sent me down was an alleyway between two ashrams. And you know what alleyways in India are like. And so it was dirty and it was smelly and it was, you know, and here I was, I was having these incredible experiences and then I would walk into this sensory overload alley and it didn't, it didn't disturb me because as everything that I was seeing, it was, yeah, oh my God. And here's the cows and here's the dogs and here's the homeless people. But it was just such a sensory overload of smell and of sound and of sight and I discovered that there was this other pathway, which was really calm and really clean and really still and beautiful that also could take me from the river back to the hotel. And that's what I started using actually the path at Parmarth Nikathan for. And I was walking through it one day because of course, every day I was just now sitting on the banks of Ganga, crying ecstatic tears and meditating, but I never would have used the word meditation. That was not a part of my, I mean, I knew the word, of course, but it wasn't a part of how I referred to my own actions or experience. It was only in retrospect that I could look back and say, oh yeah, that was that was meditation. But I was sitting there all day, every day, and I'd go back and forth to the hotel to use the bathroom or at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, either way. And I was walking through the ashram one day and I heard a voice and the voice said, you must stay here. And I I looked around because obviously if there was a voice, someone must have spoken, but there was no one. The pathway was completely empty. There was no one on the benches, and I thought, "Huh, okay." Because obviously, if there was no one, it meant I didn't hear a voice. So I thought, "Okay, I guess I just imagined that." And I kept walking, and thirty seconds or so later, I heard it again. "You must stay here." And again, I looked around. I mean, if there's if there's a voice, there must be a speaker, but there was no one. I looked up as somebody yelling from a balcony. And there was no one. And I just was about to ignore it for the second time. And my own voice came in. And it was very clearly my voice. The first voice was definitely not my voice. I mean, obviously, I heard it on the inside. People say, well, was it your inner voice? And it's such a tough question because, yes, I heard it on the inside. But no, it wasn't any voice I had ever been familiar with. It was not a voice I had ever heard before. And I then heard my voice, my very familiar voice, come in and say, okay, okay, you can do this. You can just pretend that you haven't heard a voice. That's all right. But you're going to get yourself back to Delhi and back on a flight to California because you are making a choice not to keep your heart open. And for, for me, I've always been very, 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 dedicated to truth. I was one of those truth at all costs people. Since, since I've come to India, I've learned a lot more in terms of what, what Lord Krishna speaks about when he talks about tapas of speech or dharmic speech and how it has to be not only true but it also has to be kind and beneficial.
0: Yeah, I just read but, your article about how, you know, Indians will say, "Oh, yes, I'll have it for you tomorrow." And <laughs> they have no intention of having it tomorrow, but they don't want to disappoint you, you know.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they've got they've got the kind part down, and I had I had the true part down. I just didn't have the kind or beneficial part down. And so I I had always been a truth at all costs person. And both with other people as well as with myself. And so it was acutely obvious to me that I was ignoring something. And I was okay with that. I was fully prepared to let myself pretend that I had not heard a voice because in my entire sphere of reference, the only people who heard voices were schizophrenic. And clearly I wasn't schizophrenic, or I certainly hoped I wasn't schizophrenic. And there was, I mean, I I had never even read books by or about religious people or spiritual people or anyone other than Joan of Arc who heard voices. And so I didn't have any frame of reference in which to say, ah, this is an inner voice. Ah, this is a divine voice. Ah, this is a voice of God. Yes, this happens to people. I didn't know. So I was fully prepared to let myself ignore it as long as I then followed up on my vow, which was, get yourself back to America. No point roaming through this country if you're not going to keep your heart open. And I didn't want to go. I had had this incredible experience. I knew I was supposed to be there on the banks of Ganga. So the last thing I wanted to do was go back to America. And so I had to say, okay, all right, I'll 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 admit I've heard a voice and I looked up and I see a sign in English that says office. And I went in. But that was, that was the first time that actually the why I've come to India or anything about any conversation I had had with myself about coming to India came into my consciousness at all.
0: Okay. So you saw the office and... Um... Well you, you know I, I know your story, but the listeners don't, but there, there was a point at which you know I guess they told you you could you know you may not be able to stay there and and the, the head of this ashram is away right now and you'll have to wait till he gets back to get permission and so on. And then there was a thing where you were trying to walk out of the ashram to go hiking in the mountains and your feet stuck to the floor. So put those in order because those are interesting parts of the story.
1: So yes, I walked into the ashram and I said, I want to stay. And they said, Oh, you know, you've got to get up early in the morning. We have prayers at five o'clock. At that time, the five o'clock in the morning prayers were compulsory for everybody. They're no longer compulsory, but they, because we now have so many different programs that also run and so many people of so many different religious traditions who come. And so we've just removed anything compulsory. But at that time, you had to show up. Five o'clock in the morning, there were prayers. And he said, so you've got to get up really early in the morning. You've got to be in these prayers at five. They're all in Hindi. Everything's in Hindi. And so, you know, don't stay here. So, but I realized I need to stay there. And so I said, look, I will get up at any time in the morning you want. I'll sit in anything you say. Just let me stay. And that was when he said, well, actually, we don't even have the authority. See, Nikathan is a very, very old lineage. It's been there. The ashram has been there since 1942. And the lineage is one of the oldest and most traditional Shankaracharya lineages of India.
0: Oh, it's Shankaracharya. Okay.
1: It's the Shankaracharya lineage. And so that's, that's where the Saraswati last name, lineage name comes from, as it goes back to the Shankaracharya tradition. So it's very traditional. And under my guru, Pujaswamiji's leadership, over the decades that he's been in charge, it has blossomed and grown and opened. And we now are, you know, full of people from every country and every corner of the earth and every religion and every race and every aspect of society. And, but at that time, as a Western female, I couldn't just walk in and get a room. I had to get special permission from Swamiji. And, but they didn't, they didn't say special permission from Swamiji. They said special permission from our president. Now, in my mind, since I didn't know anything about ashrams or religious leaders, I pictured a man in a suit and tie with a briefcase who was going to come and review my application and, you know, either approve it or disapprove it. And so I said, "Okay, well, can I meet him? And they said, oh, he's out of town. And I said, "Okay, well, when's he coming back? And they said, "Mm, maybe tomorrow. And this goes back to the saying that which is they think is kind and beneficial, but not necessarily true, which was, we have no idea when he's coming back. Turns out he was in America at the time working on the Encyclopedia of Hinduism project. There was a massive conference going on in America with hundreds of scholars from all over the world. But the people sitting in the office didn't know that. And so they just said, maybe tomorrow. And so I came back every day and I would ask, is he back? And they would say, maybe tomorrow. (laughs) And eventually I read in the book, in The Lonely Planet, where it basically talks about how Indians will say things that aren't necessarily true to keep you happy. You know, they don't do it maliciously. They do it to make you happy. And they tell you what they think you want to hear. And so I, I read that and I realized, oh, okay. So for whatever reason, they don't want me to stay, but they don't want to tell me. They don't want to make me feel bad. And so they've invented this phantom higher authority who doesn't exist and who's clearly never going to show up then, knowing that eventually I'm just going to get tired of asking and I will go away. So I thought, all right, I'm not going to harass these people unnecessarily by continuing to go in and ask. Let me just... Stop asking. But I knew something was about to happen in my life. You know, it's like if you're, if you're in a movie, watching a movie, and that music starts to play, and you just, you know something's about to happen, and you don't know what it is, and you don't know from where, but you just instinctively reach over and grab the hand of the person sitting next to you. Or if you're watching it alone, you kind of grab your own hand and your, your heart rate starts to get a little faster and you just know something is about to happen. And that music was playing in my life and I knew something was about to happen. So I realized, all right, maybe it's not here. Maybe it's not at this place. And as I said, I had always been a mountain person. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's the mountains. And so we made a plan to go up to the mountains, up to Badrinath, which is a very, very sacred pilgrimage area, a few hundred kilometers up in the mountains from Rishikesh. And we had made plans to go on Monday morning. On Saturday evening out of the blue, I said, no, sorry, Sunday evening, Sunday evening, out of the blue, I said, you know, let's not go tomorrow. Let's go Tuesday. All right. You know, didn't matter. And so we changed, changed the plan, decided to go Tuesday. Monday, I was walking through the ashram to get back to the hotel and I had stopped even going into the ashram to ask. I didn't want to bother them unnecessarily. When from the temple, from the ashram's temple, there was a man I had befriended, a beautiful man who was from Maharashtra and he spoke excellent English. And he spent several months a year doing seva or dedicated service, selfless service. It's a very, very strong tradition in the Indian spiritual philosophy is this this concept of selfless service, particularly in religious places, for religious places. And so he would spend several months a year doing seva. And his seva was he would sit in the temple after people had finished going and having darshan of all of the different statues, the different deities in the temple, he would be the one to give them the prashad, the blessed food, which at the ashram is puffed rice. And so he would sit there and he would hand out the puffed rice. And I had befriended him earlier in the week and he knew that I was waiting to meet the president. And I was walking through the ashram that day and he came running after me. And he says, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. You have to come meet him. And I said, wow, okay, okay, great. And he, he takes me up the pathway. And as we're walking, he starts talking about, and when we get there, you have to do pranam. And I'm like, what's pranam? Pranam. And he says, it means when you bow, you bow low on the ground. And suddenly I was nervous where before it was a man in a suit and tie at a desk. Now suddenly it was this, it was this figure who made Pratap's eyes just, I mean, suddenly they were, they were glowing and, and I was going to bow low on the ground and, and I was nervous. And I said, all right, look, I'll just do whatever you do. You just show me what to do and I'll follow. And so we go in and there's a room full of people and each of them, it's clear that they're not together. It's clear that it's a room of a bunch of different individuals or families who are just waiting to see Swamiji. And at the front of the room, sitting on this very thin little cushion on the ground is Pooja Swamiji, is this incredible being. And again, remember, I had pictured, you know, a desk and a man in a suit and tie. And here here was this just being who, who exuded love and light in a way that I had never experienced in any being. Where, yes, there was a form. Yes, there was a being. And you could say, ah, oh, he's got long brown hair. And ah, oh, he has a long brown beard. And yeah, yes, he's wearing orange robes. So yes, there was a form, but I was an entire big room away from the form, but I felt him. You know, the way that you feel when someone you love embraces you, well, you've got to be physically there. You've got to be in their embrace. But I was feeling the love. I was feeling the the presence of divinity from across the entire room. And it literally felt to me like he was a fisherman and had thrown this fishing hook into my heart and was then, you know, reeling me in and my heart was just like, you know, I just, I just, just wanted to get, get closer. So rather than a fish being on the end of a hook dying and, and gasping for life it was it was for me also in a way gasping but gasping for suddenly this this new new life that i had just been in the presence of for 10 15 seconds and so we we sit down in the back of the room to await our turn and eventually we get Called up to the front and Pratap bows down and I, I bow down next to him and I'm, I'm looking out from under my elbow <laughs> to see what he's doing. Cause otherwise when you bow, you know, your face is on the ground and how do you know what to do next? So I had my face on the ground, but I'm looking from under my elbow at him and we sit up and I, I told him that I wanted to stay. I didn't tell him I had heard voices, of course. And he says to me, this is your home. Now, in 21 years, I've heard him say this to countless, countless people. And I don't mean countless dozens. I mean countless hundreds of people, maybe even countless thousands of people. This is what Pujaswamiji says. This is your home welcome home. You arrive, he says, welcome home. But at the time, it felt very prophetic. And I said, you know, that I wanted to stay, they wouldn't give me a room. He said, no problem. I will tell them to give you a room. He said, go to the mountains if you want, no problem. I'll tell them to give you a room when you come back. And he said, but I'm going to only be here for the next week, and then I actually have to go out of town again. He said, but don't worry. Even if I'm not here, I will make sure that they give you a room. You are always welcome. So we bowed and walked out, and Pratap went back to the temple. And I walked down the path to where I was going to take a right turn to walk out of the ashram. Out the back gate back to the hotel to announce, you know, that I had just found an ashram that we could stay in and we had to, you know, we could stay there when we got back from the mountains. At that time, I wasn't even necessarily thinking I have to not go to the mountains. I was just so, so touched and overwhelmed and I walk and I get to this point where the main ashram pathway that goes from Ganga, from the Ganges out to the back gate, intersects the pathway that's in front of Pujaswamiji's reception area. And I get there and I'm about to turn to go out and suddenly I can't move. My feet are literally glued to the ground and... The first thing I thought was, oh my God, I've contracted some horrible illness. I mean, I had to get all of these vaccinations before I came to India, polio and tetanus boosters, you know, all of these, all of these things I had to get. And suddenly I thought, oh my God, one of these vaccinations didn't hold and I've contracted some horrible disease and I've lost, I've lost the uh, the feeling or the use of my legs And then I calmed down and I realized, chances are disease doesn't come on like this. Because of course I had no pain, I could feel my legs. It wasn't that I couldn't feel them, I could feel them fine. There was no pain, I just couldn't move them. Just couldn't pick the feet up off the ground. I mean, I could bend my knees, I could straighten my knees, I could do everything else. I just couldn't lift my feet off the ground. So I then thought, well, all right, I'm not used to sitting on the ground and we've been sitting on the ground. So maybe they've just gone to sleep. And so I bend down and I start to massage my legs. There were no pins or needles, no tingling, no nothing. I had full feeling in them. They just, I couldn't get them off the ground. So I was, I was a neurology student. I was studying, you know, pediatric neuropsychology. And so I thought, okay. And I closed my eyes and I I pictured my brain. And I literally did one of these intentions of the the neurons in my brain and which neurotransmitters were going to be released into which synapses of which neural networks in order to fire in such a way that the, the muscles of each leg could contract and lift. Nothing. And I then started to get scared again. But but at this moment, from the back of the ashram where a lot of the people who serve in the ashram live and a lot of them have children and young children, this group of young children come tearing down the pathway. They're playing tag or something and they're they're yelling and they're racing and chasing each other. And instinctively, because I was standing in the middle of their pathway, instinctively I moved back. And I then realized, oh, all right, I'm free. Maybe, you know, it was like the hiccups and I just had to get scared in order to be to be able to move again. But again, I couldn't move forward. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense because I literally just moved backwards. And so then in in my Fully serious, but obviously absurd in retrospect scientific reasoning. I decided, well, maybe I have a disease whereby I can only walk backwards. Because here I've just walked backwards. I couldn't walk forwards. So I, I spin myself around so that my back is now facing the back of the ashram. And I decide, well, all right, I'm going to just walk out of this ashram backwards. And, and I already had a little crowd of people around me because, you know, at that time, Westerners were also unusual. Now again, you know, it's become just full of people from every country, every walk of life, all over the world, every color. But at that time, being white was still, was still unusual. So as it was, People would, would turn and turn and notice and look. And here I was now standing in the central pathway of the ashram, you know, kind flailing my arms, trying to move. And so you've got white girl in the middle of the ashram, you know, flailing her arms. And so I had I had quite a crowd of people around me. And now I was spinning around as though I was gonna walk out backwards. But I couldn't move. And I then took a deep breath and I went, ah, okay. There's only one other possibility. It's not about forwards or backwards. It's about direction. Because I cannot walk out of that ashram either facing forward or facing backwards. I've just tried both. And yet... I could walk backwards in the direction from which I had come, the direction of Swamiji's area. And so I thought, well, maybe it's the direction. And I was, I was now already facing back toward his office because I had spun around to walk out backwards. So I thought, well, let's see what happens. Can I walk back toward his office? And of course I could. And so now this entire drama had lasted maybe only about two minutes or so. I mean, it wasn't very long. And so I walk back into his room and I stand at the door and he's still sitting there meeting people and he looks up and he looks at me and I said, I think I'm supposed to stay now and he said welcome (laughs) and that was it
0: nice okay let's broaden it out a little bit you obviously been in the service of a guru now for a couple of decades and i've also had that experience these days there's so many things that are in your life that i want to have us talk about in this interview that are really beautiful and interesting but these days there's a sort of a sentiment going around that the guru era has ended uh you may have heard this that one should be one's own guru one should be self-sufficient partially this is due i think to there have been to, to there having been many abuses by so-called gurus and i don't know partially maybe it's american independent thinking you know that the eastern culture has come here and run into that and people are sort of beginning to Rebel against it and say, you know, we should be independent. We shouldn't be under the sort of jurisdiction or authority of any human, other human being. There should be, there shouldn't be this hierarchical difference between us and a teacher. Every everybody should, should should be more of an egalitarian arrangement, and so on. I mean, have you have you gotten whiffs of that sort of sentiment in the air? And how would you respond to it?
1: Well. I haven't gotten whiffs of it exactly like that, but certainly as I travel and do satsangs that I always try to include question and answer in it, a question that comes up very, very frequently is about why do we need a guru? And this comes up frequently even in India because the people who come, come from all over the world. And so this question absolutely comes up very frequently. And for me... First of all, it's not, it's not a power differential. So the idea of equality is really a, a moot point. It, 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 it's not looking at that relationship. The guru disciple relationship, it's not about power. It's not about a hierarchy. The guru is one. The word guru, the Sanskrit word guru literally means The one who removes the darkness and brings light. That's what the Guru is. It's not the one who tells you what to do. It's not the one who has power over you. I mean, it's not about that. It's the one who brings light and removes the darkness. And yeah, I do think it is important. And the reason I think it's important is... Unless you have been able to work with your own ego in such a brutally, searingly honest way, you're still being impacted by the ego. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a judgment or a criticism. It's just a statement. It's true for all of us. I know it's true for me. The ego still absolutely plays its games and its games are very insidious because the ego, much like a chameleon, has the ability to become whatever it thinks we want it to be. So I'm going to tap into that inner voice and the ego is like, Oh, inner voice, I can do inner voice. And, and so, so suddenly. The voice you're hearing from within is saying things like, oh, don't do that, don't do that, you're not good enough to do that, you know, or, and that's, that's a voice from within, yes, but that's the ego speaking from within. That's not the capital I inner voice. But because the ego is able to do that, because remember, the ego is part of us. It's not a disease we've gotten that we have to somehow eradicate with the right medicine. The ego is part of us. It has developed along with us. You know, if you study child development, there's very clear stages of ego development that are actually crucial in many ways for development if we help our children to be socialized members of society. That's that's what the ego does. The ego teaches us, here's where you end and the world begins. So, No, sweetheart. You can't eat those cookies. Those are Johnny's cookies. See, those are on Johnny's plate. And if you want Johnny's cookies, you have to say to Johnny, Johnny, can I have a cookie? And this is, this is where we start to distinguish between where I end and Johnny begins. Or, honey, you know, Jenny was playing with that truck. You can't just grab the truck out of Jenny's hands. You have to ask Jenny, can I use the truck? This is how we learn to play nice. So this is socialization, which again is neither good nor bad. It is certainly helpful if we want people to be living in this society with the rules of this society. And in order to have that level of socialization, you have to have an experience of where I end and the world begins. And this is, this is ego development. The problem becomes later in our life when I don't want to just identify as this body. Because yet yeah, this body is very very finite. This body is very fallible. The things that has that have happened to this body the things this body has done. And by body, I mean, of course, the brain as well. And I'm not going to distinguish between brain and mind. We'll call we'll call the brain the physical, for this context, we'll call the brain the physical medium through which the mind interacts with experience. So the chemical and the electrical patterns of behavior in my brain that we call emotions or we call thoughts, That's all part of this body. And I I don't want to keep identifying only as this. I don't want to be my height and my weight. I don't want to be the color of my skin. I don't want to be my bank account. I don't want to be my education. I don't want to be just the thoughts in my head or the emotions I feel. I want to connect with the truth of who I am. That that I-ness that has been continuous and pervasive even though the body has has changed continuously. That pervasiveness of sense of self that as the brain has gone from scared to angry, to joyful, to despairing, has stayed the same. I mean, I, I can't be my anger because if I were angry... Then when anger dissipated, where would I be? I can't be my thoughts because if I were my thoughts, then I would cease to exist in the place between thoughts. And if I ceased to exist between my thoughts, well, who would be there to think the next thought? So, so this is all, I mean, this is all the stuff that the, the philosophy is made of. But the minute that we start to enter this path, we realize how much richer an experience is available to us if I can stop identifying just as this physical form where it's been, what it's done, what's happened to it. But in order to get beyond that, I have to get beyond my ego because my ego can only do separation. My ego can only do this is me this is where i end and you begin that's its function and so when we talk about the guru removing the darkness and bringing light it's the darkness of ignorance indian culture does not talk about the darkness of our self the self the true self the core self is divine it's pure it's perfect it's whole But on top of that whole and pure and perfect and light divinity, we've put ignorance. And that ignorance is the identification with the body, which, yeah, is finite, is fallible, makes mistakes, has electrical and chemical patterns of activity that we call anger or greed or lust or despair, And what the guru does is shows us the light, which is who we really are. So as I said, unless you and your ego have really got a great thing going where the ego is fully prepared to just go on vacation for extended periods of time whenever you want it to, and you're able to live as the truth of who you are without getting conned by the ego into thinking that that inner voice is your, or that ego voice is your inner voice. Because what the ego does is the ego then is the one who says, Oh my God! I'm living as my true self. I'm so great. See, I've got this spirituality thing down. I'm so good. Look at this. My God! I know people who've been meditating for forty years who still struggle with this. And look, my God, two days I'm there. I'm, I'm so. I should start good. teaching. So <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. I should, where's where do I get a certification? Put up a shingle. Um, I, I need the advanced course. Where's the advanced course? So so this is this is the ego. But we, we don't realize that. Or the ego, the ego works another way, which is, you know, we get a little bit of teaching. You know, so you study maybe some of Indian philosophy or yogic philosophy and you learn terms, concepts like aham brahmasmi. I am divine. So hum. I am that. So these, these teachings of you are divine. You are one with God. And the ego loves that because if I'm God, well, then, yeah, you should do the dishes. Yeah, you should, you should, you know, be the one to take care of things so that I can just be here and be God. But of course, any real spiritual experience of an awareness of, of our oneness with God comes with a simultaneous awareness of everyone else's oneness with God. God.
0: Yeah, there's Tatuamasi, thou art that as well.
1: Exactly. And therefore our oneness with each other. You know, it's the it's the if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C concept of spirituality. If I'm one with God and God is one with all, well then I'm one with all. And for me, having a guru has been of immeasurable value because my ego, it's 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 really insidious and it loves my intellectual mind. It loves rationalizations. It loves excuses. It loves separation. And the guru is the one who comes in and literally, you know, like a potter with a piece of clay on a wheel, just slaps you back into shape. And And it doesn't always feel good, which is actually why, in in my opinion, there's been a lot of Western rebellion against the Guru because we like to feel good. And we like things to be exactly how we want them. We're not a very patient culture. We're not a culture who have been taught to to wait. Um, You know, everything is instant. And if it's not instant, there's a problem, you know. Um, we get, we get very, very angry. I was listening yesterday to a a funny talk about people who yell, you know, it it was a talk about artificial intelligence and about how furious people get at their artificial intelligence. And, you know, how people scream at Siri, how people scream at Alexa, how people scream at these, at these devices for not understanding them exactly, for not doing exactly what they want. And just how absolutely intolerant we have become, and how that impatience and intolerance has become so pervasive that we're not even able to take a deep breath and say, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) This thing is a programmed machine, for God's sakes. It's not my spouse, it's not my mother, it's not my child. It hasn't been created to understand me. There are algorithms inside it, you know, but we can't even do that. And so if a guru slaps us into shape, and I do not mean physically. If a guru slaps us into shape, a slap on the ego, it doesn't feel good. Well, we want to feel good. So I'm going to go find someone who's going to make me feel better. And it may be a different guru, maybe a different teacher. It may be somebody who says, oh, you don't actually need a guru. See, because you're perfect already. Aham brahmasmi. You're God. You're perfect. But on a personal level, I I never in a million years would have become who I am today if I didn't have my guru slapping me at every turn?
0: All right, I have about a four-part question. See if you can remember all the parts. One is, really, what qualifies a person to become a genuine guru? Not somebody who just uses the term, but really a guru worth his salt. Number two, how does the student know that this, this or that person is genuine? How, how does the student muster up the necessary discernment to evaluate uh, among all the available choices and know which person or persons are, are genuine. Number three, many gurus, like there are a thousand people living in your ashram. And if you go to see Amma, you know, there's tens of thousands maybe showing up and she only has a couple seconds for each person. These situations where there's one guru and maybe thousands or tens of thousands of People around, how can the guru possibly help? Because you know that she, she, he or she really can't spend that much time with anybody. And there might have been a fourth part, but that's good enough. I, that's all the ones I remember. <laughs> okay. So the first so, part was what really qualifies a yeah, person I to be a guru.
1: You have to have something before you can give it, and so I have to have light before I can bring it to somebody else. I have to have had my own darkness removed before I can remove somebody else's. You know, it's it's not like a haircut where, for example, I may have a really bad haircut, but I could give you a good one. You know, maybe I'm a great barber and my barber's really bad, so my barber's given me a bad haircut, but I can still give you a good one. Light is not like that. You have to have it before you can give it. And so what qualifies a guru to be a guru is someone who really is able to live in the light, which is why we talk about enlightenment. I wouldn't say someone who is enlightened, because of course that takes you into a completely another category of who's to decide, but someone who is living in light is qualified to, bring light to others. If I'm if I'm a candle and my candle is lit, well, I therefore am qualified to light your wick? I have something to offer you. How does someone know that a guru is
0: right for them or that they're really lit, well, this is, you know, because they really exactly, may exactly. not have been quite so well lit and but who began functioning as a guru?
1: Yes. Well, this is, this is slightly tough because there is, of course, no cookie cutter answer. There's a couple of points that I would give. First is we have to be clear of what we're looking for. In the highest, purest aspect, the guru is the one who brings us light. But we don't always go to a guru for light. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people I've heard come and bow down and say, my son's got an exam tomorrow. You know, please, please, please bless him that he should get an A on the exam. And Pruja Swamiji will say, well, is he home studying? And the parents will say, no, see, that's the problem. We can't convince him to study. So please, I just need your blessings, you know, that he should get an A on the exam. Well, Yes, the Guru's blessings are amazing and powerful and magical and their grace. But what are we, what are we going for? The reason that I mentioned this is because in a lot of the cases with the Gurus who have quote unquote fallen, which I'll, I'll come to that, we'll talk about that. If you If you look back, what you'll see is, A lot of what they were offering was not just pure light, which means that that which attracted us was not just an inner yearning for light. So maybe there was an incredible charisma and we were attracted to the charisma Of the Guru, maybe there was a lot of gold and lavishness and wealth, and we were attracted to that because what we're looking for is wealth in our own lives. And if the Guru just blesses me, well, then I also will have a magic wand and will become wealthy. Maybe the Guru does miracles And what we're looking for is miracles in our life. Um, Could you wave your magic wand and give me the spouse that I want or the child that I want or the job I want or the body I want? Um, So what we have to really look at with ourselves is what am I looking for? You know, in some cases you see situations with gurus who have such incredible lavishness and then there'll be some scandal related to money and you find out the guru was doing this with money and the devotees will have a fit oh my god we were betrayed and and you look back and you realize well now wait when you went in what the guru said to you because if you go back to teachings what, what the guru said to you was follow me And you will, you will have this prosperity. Follow me and there will be prosperity in your life. I will, I will bring all good things to you. So the question is, what are we looking for? So the first thing I would say is when you're looking for a guru, you've got to be really clear within yourself of what are you looking for? Because these days you will be able to find pretty much Someone who's prepared to offer you pretty much anything in the name of being a guru of that thing. You know, oh, you want to be able to manifest lots and lots of money? You'll find people who will be tell you that they will teach you how to do that. You want to be, you know, the most virile sexual partner on earth? You'll be able to find gurus who I am sure will tell you that they'll be able to Make you that you want to, you know, whatever it is that that you're looking for. In this day and age, you'll be able to find somebody who will guarantee you if you just follow them that you'll have. Yeah, this a
0: guru sense. in India, is, as I understand it, sometimes just means like you might have a tabla guru or a cooking guru or somebody who has a, a craft to teach you, and that they are also sometimes referred to as gurus. But what we're talking about here, obviously, is a, a guru who can help one attain enlightenment.
1: Exactly, exactly. So this is why the first part of knowing that the guru is right is first asking ourselves, what am I looking for? What is it that has attracted me to this person? Am I attracted by the charisma? Because charisma in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's it's found in amazingly enlightened leaders It's also found in amazingly harmful. It's
0: found in politicians and rock stars.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so we really need to check in with ourselves of what is it that's making me attracted to this guru? And the other thing to me that's really a crucial element is what does this guru tell me about being my guru? And so, for example, the real master's are really very happy to just meditate. The real masters are very happy to just be one with God. They don't need you as a disciple in order to feel full themselves, which means that you're not going to find a real master becoming irate if you choose not to become their disciple or becoming irate if they find out that you're also going to lectures or classes or, you know, satsang with another master. A real master is not going to try to convince you that they are the most enlightened, the best guru. So one of the things that I share with people is the more someone feels like they're running after you, the faster I would run in the other direction. The, the real masters are the ones who, due to their compassion, have come back on earth in a body for us to bring us light. But they don't need to collect disciples. So that's that's another way.
0: Well, let me just interject here. But um, if they are, if they really got something, chances are they may collect a lot of disciples. But what you're you know because people will be attracted to them. But what we're, we're of saying course, is of what you're saying is that's not their motivation. It's just happening because they're exactly. naturally, you know, moths are being attracted to a genuine flame.
1: Of course, of course, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying by any means. Thanks for clarifying that. I'm not saying by any means that. A huge crowd means it's not the right guru. What I mean is that the guru doesn't need the crowd. The crowd needs the guru. And and if you say go once or go twice and then don't go, you're not going to find that the guru is chasing you down to find out why you're not with the guru. The guru doesn't need you. You need the guru. The guru is there. The guru is light. But it's not going to come running after you saying, I'm the only guru for you. You know, if you don't think that I'm your guru, it's because of your ego. It's because of your ignorance. You know, the guru is not going to start berating us for either not wanting to be with them or having doubts or having questions. So, so that's important. And I think also is... To just really ask ourselves, what do I feel in the presence of this guru? Do I feel light? Do I feel love? Or do I simply feel the energy of the mob of the crowd? Because again, like charisma, that's just an, an energy. It can sometimes be very, very good and beautiful and amazing, and it's the stuff that you know a lot of spiritual ecstasy is made of. But it's also the stuff that, you know, lynchings are made of. And, and so that power that happens in a crowd is very, very seductive. And it's important to ask ourselves when I'm in the presence of the guru, what do I feel? Do I actually feel light and love? Do I feel personally like there's light and love in me? Or do I just feel like a moth who has to be drawn to the flame in order to get light? Because remember, what the Guru is going to do is light you. And if it's all about only being near the Guru and only following the Guru around, then that might be another indication that the Guru's light isn't necessarily strong enough to light you in such a way that when you take step 10 feet back, you're still lit. And that's important is do I feel that light in me? When I go back to my room at night, if I'm, if I'm staying in an ashram or when I go back home after seeing the guru, am I still lit or am I miserable because I'm no longer in the guru's presence? And then the last, the, the last, the last part that you had asked about, you know, and, and our ashram, by the way, we have a thousand rooms. Oh, so it's, it's not a thousand people. The two ashram actually has people, a thousand maybe. rooms. It's... Um, yeah. If they're Westerners, many, many more. If they're Indians who can sleep lots and lots to a room, wherever there's floor space, there's a bed for Indians. Here's the thing about the guru and where a guru differs from a psychologist, for example, is the way that the guru lights us or brings us light or removes our darkness is not only through one-on-one individual psychotherapy. Sitting in the presence of the guru touches you. The teachings of the guru touch you. And so I know, for example, that Pujaswamiji absolutely doesn't have time to be doing a lot of, you know, one-on-one with everybody who comes. And I'm sure the same is true. You gave the example of Amachi. I'm sure it's true for her. I'm sure it's true for, for all of them. And yet, the beautiful aspect of grace is, That you could have a thousand people sitting in a hall, sitting somewhere, the guru speaks, and every single one of those people walks out knowing that the guru was speaking to them. Every one of them walks out feeling like, yes, that was exactly, exactly what I needed to hear. How did she know? How did he know? And so these are, these are the ways
0: yeah, and I would say it's not only what the Guru says, and it speaks directly to each of those thousand people, but see if you agree with this, that it serves as a sort of a conduit or a transformer or something that helps, a catalyst that helps mm-hmm. to enliven the field in which everyone is gathered. And that exactly. enlivened yes. field by osmosis kind of um, uplifts everyone, like kind of like the rising tide lifts all yes. boats kind of an idea. Yes, yes. Not everyone would have such a powerful transformative, magnetic, magnetic, you know. Magnetic, yeah. yes. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very, very, very powerful. This was what happened to me when I met Pujaswamiji Swamiji for the first time. I was in a room, with back of the room, with lots and lots and lots of people, and I felt it immediately. And I, didn't, and I wasn't even looking to feel it.
0: Yes. And um, yeah, I would just say to somebody listening, if you have an opportunity to... Spend time with a, with a guru like that. Um, you'll know what she's talking about. I mean, you walk in the room or they walk in the room. And, I mean, I've had a number of occasions, both with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and with Ama, where I didn't even know they were coming into the room. But, but all of a sudden, something changed in the room. You know, there was this sh- shift, yeah, you know. The, light,
1: the lights yeah. went on.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. A, I think we've exhausted that topic, or at least for the time being we have. So um, there's more I can say on any of these things. Maybe it would be good to talk about seva a little bit because you do so much of it. And, um, you know, you, so I'd like to have you define it and talk about the value of it as a spiritual practice, if we want to put it that way, or whatever you would like to say about it um, and kind of the, the deeper sort of metaphysical implications of it. And let's, let's hammer around that that topic for a little bit. <sighs>
1: Sure, it's it's a beautiful topic. It's one of you know my favorite topics. Where we are, the word Parmarth. So the ashram is called Parmarth Nikatan, and Nikaton means an abode, a place. Parmarth means dedicated to the welfare of all. And so it's really dedicated to service. We're dedicated to service on Two different levels, or many levels, but two categories of levels. One being what you could call external and the other being internal. So external being food to the hungry, free education to those who wouldn't be able to afford it, free medical care to those who wouldn't be able to afford it, um, shelter, lots and lots of work with now water, sanitation, hygiene, women's programs, I and mean, we do lots and lots and lots. Yeah, this
0: thing of providing toilets. I mean, the statistics are shocking in terms of how many people don't have them and what the social implications are of that. Exactly,
1: you know. exactly, exactly. So that's, that's the service of all on the logistic level. Somebody needs food. They need an education. Women need a vocational training center. We need trees planted so that every year when the rains come, the mountains don't continue to fall down into Ganga, carrying villages along with them. We need fruit trees planted so that the children in the poor schools can actually have access to fruit. We need toilets because hundreds of millions of people in India don't have access to a toilet, and about sixteen hundred children under the age of five die every single day from preventable diarrhea, simply due to lack of clean water, sanitation, and hygiene. So this is people need medical care. So we're going to run free medical camps. So that's that's that. Uh, and side.
0: Let me just ask quickly: Is are you doing this in the Rishikesh area in North India in all of India? Even places other than All India? I mean, what's the scope?
1: Primarily India. We have some uh, projects that are in the pipeline for Africa, um, but primarily primarily India for now. And we like working in our state of Uttarakhand just because it's close and it's easy to oversee, but we've actually got projects going in many, many other states of India from the South to the North. Okay, so Let me know, the another place. quick
0: question. What's what's the difference, if any? Uh, what is What dimension is there if people who are spiritual aspirants primarily are engaged in this kind of work as compared with Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross or, you know, groups like that?
1: Okay. Okay, so if it's okay with you, I'll get to that question in a minute because it's actually... It falls in very nicely with this other, this other component. So the other component of service is the spiritual component, which is people who have roofs over their heads, maybe several roofs over their heads, who have lots to eat, who don't have any diagnosable disease that a free medical camp is going to be able to treat, who don't need to learn how to sew or need computers in order to make a living. Who have toilets, or maybe lots of toilets, um, but whose hearts are empty? And and to us, there's no there's no judgment on which is more important—an empty stomach or an empty heart—and we are equally committed to filling the hearts, filling the lives of people for whom that's what they're suffering from, where there may not be, as I said, a diagnosable disease, but they are living in a state of dis-ease. They're not living in peace, in union, in oneness, in joy. So that's that's what we do. And here's how the seva works. And this is really what distinguishes it from all of those other organizations that you just mentioned For us, the service really is spiritual practice. And so from a top down, you'd look at what we do. You could go to our websites, you look at our brochures, and you say, oh, here are the free schools. Here are the women's vocational training programs. Here are the upliftment programs. Here are the medical camps. Here are the clinics. Here are the toilets. Here are the water programs. Here's the disaster relief work. Here's the orphanages. Here's all of the work for cleaning the river. Here's all the tree plantation work. Here's the menstrual hygiene work. I mean, so whatever it is, you could look down all of this top down. But bottom up, really what we are is a spiritual organization that is rooted in the belief that we're all one. And so we serve not as separate. We serve not as people who have to those who don't. We serve not as humanitarians or philanthropists, but we serve as spiritual people who recognize that the other is self. And so, you know, the example that I always give about this is if you if you trip and you fall and you hurt your right leg, The left leg is going to pick up the extra weight and we call that limping. And if the left leg has to do it for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or eight weeks, it's going to keep doing it. And you never have to say, Oh, you know, wonderful humanitarian, great left leg. Would you mind? Would you mind picking up the extra weight? And the left leg is never going to say, Oh my God, again? Like, I just did this last month. What is it with that right leg? You know, forget it. No, I'm not going to do it again. Or, you know, it's never going to say, all right, I've done this for a week. I'm tired. I'll pick up the weight again in two days. For the next two days, no limping. It's it's not going to do any of that. And it's not expecting some kind of accolades or a gold star or a humanitarian award because it understands that the right leg is self. And for us, seva is sadna. Service is spiritual practice. It's not sadna and seva. It's seva as sadna. Can I see the other as self? And so when people are serving, and if they're grumpy or they're cranky or they're jealous, or there's whatever it is, the the teaching that we always give them is not about change your service. It's about meditate more or change your meditation because clearly there's something lacking in your meditation if you're not serving from that place. And so that's really what the seva is, is can I... Become just a vessel and a vehicle. And so it's not what I think. It's not what I want. It's not whose name is on what. It's not who's got what title. It's how can we be vehicles and vessels and how can, how can my only job description be to respond to whatever the present moment requires? So, I mean, for example, if let's say one day, a man wanders into my office because for some reason at that time of day, coincidentally, there was no one sitting in the outside reception office and he wandered around till he found a door and he found the door to my office and he walked in and he had spent three days traveling with his mother from someplace far away and they'd traveled on the back of a bullock cart and they had traveled by auto rickshaw and they had walked and they had finally come because he had seen an advertisement for a free medical camp that we were doing and his mother needed the operation that we were offering. And so he's brought her and he, he wanders into my office for me to say to this gentleman, Oh, welcome. Sit down. I'm a spiritual teacher. I'll give you a spiritual lecture. Or, or I teach meditation. Sit down. Let me, let me teach you meditation. It would be absurd, bordering on, bordering on criminal. What the man needs is a meal. He needs a hot shower. He needs a room or a cold shower, depending on the season. He needs a room. He needs to be assured that his mother is going to be registered in this medical camp and is going to get the treatment she needs and only after all of that is done should we even begin to start to say oh and you know by the way we run this satsang every night or you know by the way i teach this meditation it's it's like maslow's you know hierarchy of needs so you've got it you've got to work like that and so that's really how we do the seva is, and this is where all of the components become so crucial, is whatever the person in front of you needs is what you do. They, they need a cup of tea, you're a chaiwala. They need a spiritual lecture, you're a teacher.
0: So you're an instrument of the divine providing whatever the person needs.
1: And that's the goal. That's the goal. That's, that's the way that seva becomes sadhana that's the how can you serve your way to enlightenment
0: yeah and i'm sure that people aren't so crass as to think this way Uh, they're not so crass as to think all right well i guess i better do this save a thing because it's going to help me get enlightened Uh, but nonetheless it would seem to me that doing it uh, sort of tends to attenuate the ego and to instill a deeper and deeper experience that we are indeed all one you know, as Jesus said, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And he also said, I and my Father are one. So by logical extrapolation, yes. <laughs> the oneness of oneself with God yes. can be, um, cultured or cultivated or enlivened in one's awareness by actually treating others as, you know, golden rule here. Yeah. Uh, of course.
1: It, well, and also, you know, wh- what, what I love is when Jesus Christ says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the reason I love it is because you can't love the neighbor as thyself unless you can see the neighbor as thyself. And so, really, it feels to me, and I'm far from any kind of an expert or scholar or even slightly knowledgeable about, you know, Christian philosophy, but it feels to me, Like what he's really saying is, see thy neighbor as thyself. And if, if I'm going to see my neighbor as myself, and he didn't say only the next door neighbor, you know, so, so there's no, there's no border. And so by extrapolation, what you end up with really is very much like what we end up with in the Indian tradition, which is, we're all one. That divine flows through all of us. There are no borders or boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's the illusion.
0: Vasudeva Kutumbakam.
1: Well Vasudeva Vasudev Katumbakam means the world is a family. So so that's that's a, a beautiful, beautiful tenet of the teaching. And what to me is so interesting is we've got Vasudeva Katumbakam, the world is a family. And then then we've got the teachings of we're actually all one. We're waves of the same ocean. And so it, it feels to me like what the sages and the rishis have done is have said, okay, so you're not quite ready to go to the place of everyone's one. No problem, we get it, that's difficult. Some of you may get it this lifetime. Some of you may not get it till next lifetime. No problem. Let's go to the world as a family, at least. So if you can't treat the other as as the self at least treat the other as the family if you can't see yourself in them at least see your yeah, family Hopefully, a
0: harmonious family I think Ram, exactly, Ram said exactly. if you think you're enlightened go spend a week with your parents uh, <laughs> but uh, I think Shankar said something to the effect that you know you're not going to get enlightened through good works but that karma yoga doing good works kind of increases purity and brings you to the point where, uh, you know, you, exactly. higher teachings might become practicable for you.
1: Exactly. It gives you the experience. It's the same thing. All of our, all of our sadhana, whatever we choose to do, whether it's karma yoga, whether it's bhakti yoga, whether it's gyan yoga, I mean, whatever path we may choose, path of devotion, path of knowledge, path of service, all of what these do, Whatever, even if we're sitting in meditation, different techniques of meditation, what all of them do is they clear that, that windshield of the dirt that blocks us from seeing the light that's already there. None, none of it brings God. There's no meditation practice that brings God. God is there. There's no meditation practice that brings grace. Grace is there. There's no practice that brings light. Light is there. The problem is we're sitting in dark rooms chanting mantras of the sun and doing sun salutations and sun pujas and all of that, praying to the sun, when actually what needs to be done is just our curtains need to be open or the window needs to be cleaned. And so what all of our practices do is open our curtains or clean the window, depending on which metaphor works better for you, so that we can be in the presence of the light, of the grace, of the divinity.
0: Another metaphor I like is the sun's always shining, but maybe it's obscured by clouds. And so practices are like the wind, which blows away the clouds. They don't make the sun shine, but they remove the obscuration of, of the sun that and you just picked off four or five different branches, you know, karma yoga, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, and I'm sure you, in your own life, is is, is an example that it's not a, an either or thing. It's not that you're exclusively one or the other. You're you're doing all of them at once, and and most people will. Although maybe some people have a proclivity to a little bit more towards one or the other.
1: But they all they all converge. That's That's the thing is it doesn't really matter where you begin. So some of us are more inclined by nature to service. Some are more inclined to devotional practices. Some are more inclined to the path of gyan or wisdom or study. But wherever you start, if it's real, if it's real, if it's true, it's going to take you into the others. You know, if you let's say you fall in love with someone and it's it's love at first sight it's love from across the crowded <laughs> West Side room Story. Well, we'll you know we'll, we'll call right we'll we'll call that bhakti yoga right so it's it's it begins with my path of devotion oh my god i love you but then of course as i love you i want to learn more about you so i've seen you from across a crowded room but now i want to take you to dinner and spend all night talking to you And then the more I know about you, of course, my love blossoms and then, then I want to serve you. So I fell in love with you across this crowded room. I spent all night learning about you and now I'm up making you breakfast in bed. So, so, and, and of course it could begin, it could begin the other way as well. So I, I didn't love you at first sight. We met in some workplace or some class or at the gym or wherever. We started talking. I started learning more and more and more about you. And the more I learned about you, the more I discovered that I really loved you. I found myself slowly, slowly, slowly falling in love with you the more I learned about you. And then, of course, as I fall in love with you, so again, here <laughs> I am making you breakfast in bed. Or,
0: the or, other, you get breakfast. or, you know,
1: massaging your feet or bringing you. Exactly. Either way. And And, of course, you could begin with service. As well. There's so many stories of you know patients in hospitals and nurses who who fall in love with each other. Um, you know, you serve someone for long enough, and as you serve
0: Yeah. If you can think you of it like a table, you them. drag any one leg and all the other legs are gonna come along.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, you know what we what we say in Rishikesh is come to Ganga. Get in Ganga. Ganga doesn't care whether you get in at Parmarth Nikathan's got our platform that's got these marble steps that go down, or you could go down river to a, a cement slope that you could walk down. You could go up river to a sandy beach. You could go further up river to a big rock that you could jump off of. It doesn't matter. Ganga has no preference for those who get in by jumping off the rock or by going in off the sandy banks or going down the marble steps than those who go down the concrete slope. It doesn't matter.
0: Just getting. And I think you're speaking Start a little bit anywhere. metaphorically here. You're not just talking about getting into the Ganges. You're talking about spirituality of course, in general. Of course.
1: Yes, of course, of course. So whatever path our yoga is, because that's what yoga is. Yoga is union. You know, we think about it as a union of my fingers to my toes, finally, or my nose to my knees. But ultimately, it's a union of the self to the divine. And so whether we say bhakti yoga, path of devotion, gyan yoga, path of wisdom, karma yoga, path of service, they're all yoga. So union. So they're they're ways into That oneness or hatha yoga. Can you get in there through practice of asanas? Yeah. As long as you do it with with the awareness and the intention that this is my path into unity. Yeah,
0: I I remember I interviewed this guy named Gary Weber and he was doing, he was in the middle of a yoga pose. I think it was a shoulder stand or something. And all of a sudden his mind stopped and he said he he really hasn't had a thought since then, (laughs) you know, at least any kind of a chatter, blah, blah kind of a thought.
1: Yeah, I was, I was very, very blessed to be able to practice in the room where BKS Iyengarji practiced in Pune sev- several years before his passing. And the room was filled only with his top students from around the world. I mean, you had to be a senior person in order to be able to be in that room at that time. And I was there actually just because my mother is a, a senior student and a teacher and and I was living in India already, so I had gone to visit her and got special permission to be in there at the same time. And he would go into a pose. Now, he was probably, if not 90, he was late, late 80s by that time. And he would go into a pose. He would go into backbend. He would go into shoulder stand. He would go into something quite difficult. All of the other people would also go into it because, of course, everyone wanted to do what he was doing. And he would hold it for 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. Everyone else is sweating and panting and their faces are red and they're coming out of the pose. And when he finally came out, his face and his eyes looked like he had just come out of the deepest meditation. And so if anyone thinks that hatha yoga cannot be or by definition is not, a path into that river of divinity, I have personally witnessed the fact that it can be. But it isn't it isn't automatically. It has to have that that intention that this is this is going to be my
0: my I path. think Dotwalla Baba was primarily a Hatha Yoga. He he was a great sage who lived in Rishikesh. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course. Before I got there, but I have heard a lot about him. Um, Well, there's so many things we could talk about. And, you know, we could talk about the Gita and we could talk about just a million different things. But here's I've just been kind of scanning my notes here. Here's something that might be nice to talk about in our remaining time. You wrote emphasis on the feminine is an inherent part of traditional Indian culture. Many people might be surprised to hear that because there seems to be so much misogyny in, in India. But Manu declared, Manu was an ancient lawgiver to the human race, Manu declared, and our scriptures remind us that, quote, where women are adored, there the gods are pleased. That respect, reverence, and love for women, not as objects of desire, but as manifestations of the divine feminine, is part and parcel of India's cultural and spiritual heritage. So I thought it might be nice to talk about that. I mean, people talk about What the world needs in general is an upsurge of the divine feminine and how the predominance of the masculine has made such a a mess of things, um, given us such a sort of militaristic, arm-to-the-teeth kind of world, and has resulted in you know, environmental devastation and, you know, just a gross materialistic kind of treatment of of nature and animals and everything else. So I'm sure you could riff on this for, for hours, but I thought it might be nice to just touch on this topic.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful topic and it's especially a beautiful way to, you know, even bring this bring this to a close because it brings us into also our world today, right here, right now, and what's needed, I think, from all of us. So for India, there's it's a really interesting dichotomy, actually, between that which is in the scriptures about women and that which, of course, we see in so much of day-to-day life, but I don't, I don't want to take our remaining time to dissect the societal issues of contemporary Indian society, but rather, rather to talk about the, the importance, I think, of that spiritual tenet, of that scriptural aspect. Because when we worship the feminine, remember it includes Mother Earth, Mother Nature. I mean, all, all of that, which when we think about life and creation, it's feminine. It's interesting in the Sanskrit language, Shakti, the energy, is feminine. And Prakriti, which is the, the form, the nature, that which is created by the energy, is also feminine. And so it's, it's a very, very interesting concept that the energy of creation is feminine and creation itself is feminine. Uh, whether we say Srishti or whether we say Prakriti, both, it's feminine, the, the, the world. So when we are moving through the world and thinking about our world and interacting with our world, you're right. So much of it has become over-masculinized And not to undermine in any way the obvious crucial role that masculinity plays in creation as well, I think there's something very telling about the fact that in this ancient tradition, the words and concepts of the creative energy and the creation are both feminine. And the fact that in not only India, but as also in English, we say mother earth, mother nature. So, so this is all, it's, it's feminine. And yet, we really have been moving through it with the, I wouldn't say masculine, I would say the objectification viewpoint, because women can do it just as well as men can do it. And it's the, the viewpoint of everything is an object. I'm an object. And this goes back to where we began the interview of I'm my body. I am what I look like. I am my bank account. I am my history. I am what I do. I am what was done to me. So I am this object, which means you are an object. You are what you look like. You are your bank account. You are your actions. And therefore, if you are an object, well, there's only two ways of me in- interacting with an object. Either you are an object I can use. You are an object that's going to be beneficial to me in some way, whether to fulfill just a sensual desire I have or to help me get something I want, or you're an object on my path. You're, you're, you're an obstacle. You're a hindrance, and I've got to remove you. So those are the two ways that we interact with objects. We either use them or we remove them. And in many cases, first we use them and then we discard them. So they're not mutually exclusive. But that's that's how an objectified viewpoint looks at the world. And this is what's brought us, I believe, to the state where we are today, whether we look at what's happening to women specifically, women's bodies, not just that which is being done to them by men, but that which is being done to them by themselves. Because as has been, you know, said so beautifully in this whole Me Too movement, you know, women, we're not, we're not just this black and white victims here. Yes, in some cases we are. There's obviously many circumstances in which it's just that. But there's also many, 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 many circumstances in which we were we were willing players in terms of the objectification of our own body until it got to a point where we no longer were willing participants. But I mention this because women are just as likely to objectify themselves and to objectify other women as men are.
0: You know, young, young girls end up getting into bulimia and anorexia and all that because they want to look like models Exactly, or
1: exactly. Or they want to look like models and even deeper because I am worthy only if I look the right way. It's not just I want to be that beautiful like the model, but if I am fat, if I am ugly, I am not just fat and ugly, I am actually unworthy. So so in any, in any case, the point is that this, this objectification has become the way that we see ourselves. And we then see, we see the world like that. We see each other like that. We see items like that. And we see nature like that. And so whether it's how we treat our rivers, our mountains, our trees, our air, our soil, or how we treat the women and girls in our life, it's all, it's all one. It's all one. It's all how, how we treat the feminine, how we treat that creative energy. And of course, therefore, how we treat the masculine. Because it's not its not about treat the feminine with respect, but objectify and abuse and discard the masculine.
0: Well, I was just going to say what you're saying actually gives one hope because the sea change that has taken place in the past year with the Me Too movement and things no longer being tolerated that were tolerated for so long could perhaps be a harbinger of a change that will also ripple out to the way we treat the environment and the way we, you know, treat the oceans and the rivers and so on. Perhaps this is just kind of like the first step and the other things will kind of fall into line, you know? I
1: seriously hope about it. I really, really hope that. And, you know, whenever we speak about women's rights or women's equality, I do, I do a lot of different, you know, panels, I get called to a lot of panels on or events or functions regarding women's rights and women's empowerment and that kind of stuff. Um, It's a very, very big topic in India these days. And one of the things that I I always am sure to mention is, yes, we have to protect and care for and revere the women, our daughters, our sisters, our wives, our mothers, our the other women, but we also have to extend that to mother earth, mother nature, to that prakriti, the creation, the entire creation. And only when we do that, can we really say that women have rights. And that's actually why one of the things that we're working on is rights for mother Ganga. Ganga should have rights. You know, and that's, it's a separate topic, of course, but that's, that's to us the most natural next step of rights for women is rights for Mother Nature. Why only Mrs. Smith and not Mrs. Amazon or <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Himalayas?
0: We've We've kind of touched around this point, but... You know, everybody talks about non-duality these days, and it's very popular. And you know, Ramana Maharshi and Advaita and so on. But if if you're really experiencing non-duality, it would seem to me then what you like what you were saying before about the left leg and the right leg. I don't see how you can see the environment as really being separate and different from yourself, and it needs to be treated accordingly. And it will be, I think, if, if people naturally Absolutely. grow into Absolutely. this more unified consciousness.
1: Well, there's, there's a beautiful line in the Upanishads that tells us, Isha Vasya Midamsarvam, Yat Jagat Yam Jagat. And what it means is, everything in the universe is pervaded by the divine. There is nothing, no one not pervaded by the divine. And so when we recognize it within ourselves, when we take it into our world with both or all of the genders, people of every race, people of every religion, people of every culture, it's then going to become, well, of every species. And that's 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 how to me it really needs to go is first first within yeah i'm i'm one with god and then all of these beings with whom i share the planet are one with god which means they're divine which means that equal is you know a very a very small small ask when we recognize that they're actually divine, which means that protection and preservation and service and love and rights are, are things that they should be given just automatically and inherently due to the fact that they're divine.
0: Yeah. Again, what Jesus said, Whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do exactly. unto me. <clears throat> Okay, well, that's probably a good note to end on. I could talk to you for another two hours, but perhaps another time, <laughs> maybe when you finish this autobiography you're working on.
1: Ah, oh, fantastic! That would be really wonderful. Yeah, that'll
0: be a, a goad to get you to finish your autobiography. <laughs> um, yes. So, um, just in conclusion, um, how can people connect with you? Can they come to that ashram? Um,
1: Absolutely. We would, we would love it. And in fact, we are hosting our International Yoga Festival from March 1st to March 7th. Um, we host it every year. We have Very, very renowned top teachers coming from all over the world. This year, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is coming as well, which is a very, very special treat for all of us. And it's a very, very renowned yoga festival. That website is internationalyogafestival.org. So literally, just like it sounds, all one word, .org, International Yoga Festival. The ashram is Parmarth Nikathan And the website is Parmarth, P-A-R-M-A-R-T-H dot O-R-G. And also you can get all of this info on my website, which is org. So S-A-D-H-V-I-J-I dot O-R-G. It also has all of my you Know writings and videos and all of that. We do satsang live every day on Parmarth Niketan's Facebook, and eventually they go up onto YouTube. But they do them live on Parmarth Niketan Facebook. Oh, every so they streamed well. all over the world? Yes, okay. exactly, exactly. Okay. So yes, we have all of that. Do you have something that if I send you links that you can actually just like flash it on the screen after so people can... uh note it down or well, do the if you want thing me to verbally be, to speak I'll,
0: it. I'll have a page for you a uh, page for this interview on batgap.com and i'll just put all those links okay. there and then people can just go to your Perfect. page and then they can click on them and there they'll be so so far i have savviji.org washalliance.org and divine and then you just mentioned a couple of others so make sure i have those too, and i'll just put them Done. all on there
1: fantastic Great. Fantastic, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And when are you coming to India? Well,
0: I don't know. I haven't been since eighty six, and I, I've, been, wow. I've been there twice, but only in the New Delhi area, and each time for about four months. Uh, haven't been back. Um, I do a lot just sitting right here, as a, as opposed to bopping around the world. Um, <laughs> but we'll see what happens.
1: It would be it would be so so wonderful to welcome you. You could. You could broadcast from the banks of G- that would be fun.
0: If I ever get over there, I will be sure to come to Rishikesh and come to your ashram. And perhaps I could meet your guru too and maybe even interview him.
1: Wonderful. 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 All
0: right, thanks. So let me just make a couple of real quick wrap up points. Um, you've been watching an interview with um, Sadhvi Bh- Bhagavati Saraswati. And uh, as I've been saying, I'll create a page for her on backapp.com, which will have information about her, all the things she does which we've only mentioned a fraction of those things, and links to everything that's significant. And um, this is part of an ongoing series. So if you go there, you'll also see all the previous ones and a, a, a list of all the upcoming ones and a place to be notified by email when a new one is posted and, you know, the links to the audio podcast if you like to listen to things like this while you're commuting or whatever. So just explore the menus and you'll see what we've got. And um, we have all kinds of great guests planned and hope to be doing this for many, many years to come. And uh, I hope to have Sadhvi back on as a guest when she finishes her autobiography. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you.
0: It was really a pleasure preparing for this and getting to know you through that and then getting to know you through this lovely two-hour conversation. And thanks for all you do. You're living an exemplary life.
1: Well, thank you. And I've really, really enjoyed these hours as well.
0: Okay. Namaste.
1: Wonderful. Namaste.